0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Daniel you Greetings to your listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Please go to thedispatch.com and check out our stuff. Uh, A lot of great stuff coming from all sorts of places. Uh, I don't want to give it away. Um, Just check it out and um, become a paid member if you can. We'd really appreciate it. So uh, it's another morning start to the solo ruminant, and um, I'm particularly out of it and sort of out of sorts this morning. Um, I was just telling these... These guys who uh, are have to sit here and listen to me as I do this and makes me feel like some sort of serial killer talking to his soon to be victims who are handcuffed to the radiator in the motel room. Um, But uh, I was uh, telling these guys that um, uh, a friend of mine sent me this email from uh, sent me an email with this this couple day old tweet uh by uh someone you probably haven't most of you haven't heard of Ryan uh Williams, who's the um the uh what is it? He's the president of the Claremont Institute and publisher of the Claremont Review of Books in the American Mine. Um and uh uh I know lots of people who like him, say he's a nice guy, all that kind of stuff. i I've probably met him. I don't remember, but that's entirely possible. Um But he's routinely one of the most annoying, I shouldn't say he's one of the most annoying people on on Twitter because that's, you know, few people can, that's a really competitive field. But, you know, because he's the president of Claremont and the publisher of the CRB, um, I get annoyed by his tweets because uh, they often run afoul of what I've always admired about claremont institute and claremont review of books which was this sort of adherence to the constitution to probity to seriousness and instead it seems more and more that a lot of these guys just are um, champions of popular front right-wingery and um anyway so a friend of mine sent me this uh tweet where um uh he was a he was criticizing David French. And so for the backstory, for those of you who didn't read the Wednesday G file, the backstory is J.D. Vance, who's again, one of these guys I've met, you know, nice guy, liked his book, think his heart's in the right place, but he's been saying some really ridiculous things um, as he is preparing, as I understand it, to run for senator in Ohio. And one of the things, and we'll talk more about this in a second, but one of the things he tweeted about was, um, that J.D. Vance tweeted about, was how. We should raise taxes on the globalist oligarchy um, that that was part of that Zoom call about Georgia's laws, and and then maybe realizing that he was cutting into a weird place, he then backed up and said, um, "But there are plenty of good companies in this country, so uh, let's 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 cut their taxes and only raise the taxes on the ones that don't pay good wages." and um are part of the globalist ol- oligarchy and um anyway it was it was a dumb couple of tweets particularly from a guy like jd who knows what he's talking about and knows that what he was proposing was in large part uh you know unconstitutional anyway to to punish corporations for their political speeches is unconstitutional and this used to be something that we used to celebrate on the right um and advocate for and that you know remember citizens united was this whole thing about how you know um you can't Stifle uh, corporate speech just because you dislike what they, you know, you have different politics and whatnot. Anyway, we'll get to all that in a second. Anyway, so David French pointed out on Twitter that uh, a lot of stuff that JD was talking about was just nakedly unconstitutional, and JD Vance's response was to say, "Well, at least I'm—I'm I'm paraphrasing. At least I'm trying something. At least I'm taking action, unlike David French, who doesn't believe in taking action." Blah 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 blah. And um, I thought it was a really dumb and immature response, and also. Uh, JD's smarter than that and I also thought it was a very left wing way of kind of responding which again we'll get to in a second but anyway I know this is a lot of preamble uh, I didn't realize that the president of the Claremont Institute had chimed in around then as well and uh, attacked David saying French can add preemptive surrender in the culture wars as a new principle the old principle his go to always punch right he's building quite the Vichy talent stack Okay. So first of all, the idea here being that David is akin to a Nazi collaborator for pointing out something is unconstitutional is sand stupid. Um, and, but the larger point that bothers me about this was that this is, this is the kind of stuff you, I expect from him these days and from a lot of people in, in, in that orbit. And that makes me very sad because I, I used to love the Claremont Review of Books. I will still occasionally read specific articles in there by by, by specific people, but uh, now that they're regularly publishing the garbage that Michael Anton's still clinging to, uh, I find it very difficult. I, I I'm filled with dread to look at it for fear that there'll be more throne sniffing um, Trumpophilia in it, and um, and that makes me incredibly sad uh i've learned a lot from a lot of those guys i've written for the claremont review of books um i used to do events for claremont uh they used to use my quotes in the ads to in the magazine uh they asked me to be the reviewer of the 10 year anniversary collection of the claremont review of books which i happily did and it was glowing with praise and now um i'm embarrassed by a lot of the stuff that comes out of there um and anyway so i responded pre coffee um, to Williams's tweet. I remember when Claremont was defined by constitutional fidelity above all else and saw itself as a counterweight to the pandering and boob baiting fever swamp, jackassery of grifters, hysterics, and fools. Now this guy is running the place. So sad. Now I'm not going to delete it. I probably should have waited for my coffee before I sent it. Um, it's not like David can't defend himself. Um, but this stuff just, it's, it makes me legitimately sad. You know, they're giving like Lincoln fellowships, which are these once considered prestigious things. I would now tell most of the young people who asked me about this stuff, you know, I used to get people who ask me for recommendations for, you know, these kinds of fellowships, I would tell them not to take them because they're, you know, taking people like Jack Prosbyak, who's a pizza gate buffoon. They're taking other sort of, you know, alt-right adjacent and, 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 and Trump troll types um as as fellows there there's some good there obviously there's still some very good people over there but uh the quality control both about what's going out and who's going in is breaking down and anyway we don't need to get deeper into all of that it just it makes me terribly sad on this larger point which is something i talked about uh in the wednesday g file which got an amazingly positive reaction it really took me by surprise um in part <laughs> given how hung over i was Writing it because of the uh Mike Gallagher uh episode, uh, which we can talk about in a little bit. Um, the most crapulent episode of uh The Remnant ever, and that's saying something anyway. Um, like this argument about you know this this thing that William is talking about about punching right, you know, um, never mind the uh Vichy, you know, asininity. Um, I get a lot of that criticism too. It's like, why can't you attack Biden? Why can't you criticize Biden? Why can't you criticize Democrats and liberals? And, and this is a point that at this point I kind of, you know, when I understand that I get a lot of it from people who actually don't read what I'm writing and don't know that in fact I do, um, uh, criticize Democrats and progressives quite a bit. And I'll put my 20 years on this beat, um, up against literally anybody's, um, in terms of, of being critical of the left. But, uh, you know, I've lost some of the taste for it because, um, I'm so embarrassed by parts of the right these days. Um, and I also don't think it's, it's as productive as it was. It doesn't mean that I've changed my views about the left and I still criticize all that stuff, but I, I you know, the own the libs stuff and their tears are delicious stuff and the trolling, I've just lost my taste for it. I really have. And it really requires something really provocative. Um, to get me to go to those kinds of places these days. Um, in part because it's so much of the shtick of the right these days. But anyway, um, one of the points, you know, that I made in the Wednesday G file is simply that, you know, part of the reason why, you know, when, when people say, oh, why don't you criticize liberals? Why don't you criticize the left? You know, why do you only punch right in effect? You know, part of my response is that a lot of the time when I'm criticizing conservatives. I don't know if you guys can hear my dogs up there. Um, a lot of the time when I'm criticizing, you know, so-called conservatives and right wingers these days, I feel like I'm still criticizing the left. And that's because big chunks of this, you know, and I talked about this a little bit in the Andy Smerrick episode, um, the much more sober Andy Smerrick episode earlier in the week. Um, I, I simply see big chunks of this nationalist populist stuff as, uh, Republicans, self-described Republicans, conservatives, whatever you want to call them moving leftward. And, you know, I, and I, I, (laughs) I may be wrong about a lot of this stuff, but you can't tell me that I haven't done a lot of thinking about this. Um, you know, this is a big part of the premise of my first book. Liberal fascism was one of the reasons why it was slanderous to call, uh, you know, American conservatives in the Anglo-American tradition, Nazis and fascists is because Nazism and fascism aren't in the Anglo-American tradition. Um, almost none of the thinkers that conservatives, you know, uh, lionized and, and revered for most of the, let's call it the last, you know, century. Um, none of them were in the, um, the sort of Nazi or fascist tradition, you know, it wasn't, you know, you know, celebrating Friedrich Hayek isn't, um, the same thing as celebrating Carl Schmidt. Now, look, I will grant you, there is a very complicated, uh, weird micro exception in some parts of the Straussian world with, uh, you know, Alan Bloom and some of those guys really being interested in Nietzsche. But part of the problem is that Nietzsche was really abused and distorted by the Nazis and wasn't that much of a sort of a Nazi figure, but anyway, that all gets very, very, very complicated. My point is, is that when uh, people would talk about uh, conservatism being, you know, fascist and statist and all these kinds of things, they kept making it sound as if the further you moved to the right in American politics, the closer you got to Mussolini or Pinochet. When in reality, the closer you got to uh, sort of libertarianism and um, and and so part of this had to do with the problems. The problem with a lot of the political science that uh comes out of mid twentieth century, you know, the, the 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 sort of one of the classic you know forms of this is the sort of this vital center kind of liberalism, which it got, often gets misunderstood. We don't need to really talk about because, like, when Schlesinger was talking about vital center he was talking about it almost sort of as a foreign policy thing, not as a domestic thing. But anyway, there is this sort of general approach to politics or to political science that says, um, uh, the center is the good place, right? The center is the place where all decency resides. And the further out you move to the left or the right, the closer you get to to totalitarianism. And you often have political science professors draw a thing on the blackboard where they'll be like, you know, uh, they'll take this line, the spectrum, and they'll bend it into a circle, and they'll talk about how communism and 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 fascism meet. Um, if you just go too far right, it becomes a circle, and you know the 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 two forms of totalitarianism meet. And so, whatever you do, this thing as a line or as a circle. The upshot is always the sin is always the same. It's these sort of centrist liberal uh, types defining where political virtue lies. And all forms of extremism being indistinguishable from each other. And part of the problem with that is it's nonsense. Um, at least, again, in the Anglo-American tradition, right? The idea that um, the more, and, 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 and very rarely in, in life do we talk about um, extremes meeting or opposites meeting, um, you know, you very rarely talk about something being so hot, it's cold or something so tall, it's short. Um, we do say bulldogs are so ugly, they're cute, but, um, the idea that you can be so right wing, or left wing makes no sense. If you think about how American politics, um, drawing from the, 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 the English and Scottish and a little bit of the French, sort of the good French Montesquieu kind of liberal tradition, um, and the Dutch can't forget the Dutch, um, uh, doesn't work that way. Like the left and right thing is a european thing um the the more extreme- mean also you have the problem that you know American conservatives are basically trying to preserve um a classically liberal revolution. they are not trying to impose monarchy um you know this is one of these points that Samuel Huntington is so useful on where he in his essay in nineteen fifty something uh conservatism as an ideology, he points out that you know america's uh, that the one of the problems with conservatism, uh, trying to understand it as a concept, is that with the exception of radicalism, there's no other uh worldview, there's no other ideology that um is entirely contextual. Right? So a conservative in Portugal or France in the 1950s wants to, or the 1850s, wants to uh, conserve the rule of altar and throne, a um, a conservative in the, this used to drive my dad nuts, a conservative in the Soviet Union would always be the most Bolshevik, right? The most radical and unwilling to change from doctrinaire um, Marxist-Leninism. And in America, the conservative was the guy, at least in the 20th century, who most wanted to uphold the ideas of the, the founding which are Enlightenment ideas, and the exact opposite of what conservatives in places like Europe, um, or you know, Asia or or Africa wanted to conserve. Because for us, the, the the things we wanted to conserve were not these sort of blood and soil traditions that date back to in you know antiquity. There were these notions of our ancient rights, you know, ancient rights and liberties, and these concepts enshrined in the Declaration and the Constitution and the, and the, in the Gettysburg Address and and. Um, it's just a completely different thing. And so anyway, that's what I've always, you know, believed. And I could talk about that for a very long time. Um, but, um, if I haven't already, uh, but what makes me so sad is that like, and, and so what I find so problematic is that so much of this new stuff from conservatism, from the conservative, the populist conservatives is proving me wrong. Right. And this is one of the reasons why I'm keep wanting to finish that dumb essay about, about revisiting liberal fascism is that, you know, when JD Vance talks about how we need to punish corporations that express concerns about voting rights in Georgia, whether the corporations are right or wrong, whether they're just doing it to get on the right side of the right demographic, it doesn't matter. When he talks about like basically, uh, punish, you know, he says, he says, uh, raise their taxes or do whatever else is necessary to fight these goons these goons being these various you know uh mainstays of the globalist oligarchy um and uh you know that's not that's not conservative in the anglo-american tradition that's that's nationalist hogwash um and you can go across a just a vast sweep of what the things that Josh Hawley and these people are talking about, never mind all the stuff that Trump talked about, um, that it strikes me as simply a rejection of what conservatism used to mean and a move leftward. And, um, and if you define, you know, this is, this is again, one of the points from, from liberal fascism. If you define, you know, Right wing and left wing, objectively, right. If you actually give give yourself an anatomical, um, uh, you know, field guide of what a left wing state looks like and a right wing state looks like, and you use it using the definitions from the Anglo American tradition about limited government and free markets and all these kinds of things, you go around if you go around the 20th century holding up your little you know chart to different um uh countries, a lot of the countries that get called right wing look pretty damn left-wing, right? I mean, if 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 you think socialized medicine is a left-wing idea, and we're always talking about it as if it's a left-wing idea in the American context, then um, you know, you can't look at the, you know, at least the 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 plans in in Nazi Germany or in Italian in Italian fascist Italy. Um and not see it as more left wing than right wing if you think that like control of big corporations if you think that uh you know uh soaking the rich if you think of uh nationalizing various industries for the good of the proletariat these are all these are all in my book at least in the anglo american context pretty left wing things not right wing things and when you see people talking about um uh Yoking big business to the political agenda of the right or punishing businesses that aren't, um, at, you know, loyal to the agenda of the right, that's a move left for me. And same thing with this idea of abandoning this idea of courts being, um, uh, simply enforcers of the law, um, and interpreters of the constitution as written. And instead, these new avenues for imposing power, uh, from above, uh, that's a move left to me. And, um, the argument that you get from a lot of people who believe this stuff, the sort of, uh, Tucker Vance, um, Holly crowd is yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, our ends are different. We want to uh, abortion. We want to impose, um, cultural norms that are consistent with, you know, virtue and, and godliness or whatever true, all fair, you yeah. know, and having different motives, having different ends is an important distinction to clarify. But at the end of the day, um, that's not, that's an interesting point. It's not a persuasive point for why we should upend, um, the classic, the constitutional order or, or our admiration for it. Um, because first of all, I mean, and as I say in the Wednesday, do file, there are a bunch of reasons for this. One is just as a matter of principle, I'm against that. Um, two, I don't think it will work. Like, I don't think that like conservatives are going to be better at industrial policy just because, they're conservative and they like the Bible or something. Um, and uh, three, it will be politically disastrous because whatever means you adopt on the right, you are giving license to the left to use as well. And and, and vice versa, right? I mean, like Harry Reid, I'm sure, very much regrets getting rid of the judicial filibuster um, because look what conservatives got to do with it. If the Democrats get rid of the of the legislative filibuster, the time will come sooner rather than later when they really regret that. And this it's this tit for tat stuff, just on the merits, is it's sort of like trying to find it's trying to like even out the legs on a table. Each side shaves a little bit too much, and eventually you've just got a tabletop on the in the dirt. And but the bigger sort of prudential political problem with all that is that the left in terms of its general orientation to politics outnumbers the right and always will. I, don't, I shouldn't say always will. I don't know about the future, but largely always has. It may not, you know, the majority may not have called itself left, but, uh, you know, get rid of the labels for two seconds. Um, the straight line, this is something Starwall and I talk about all the time. You know, the straight line conservative Paul Ryan, Phil Graham, Jonah Goldberg, if I may, sort of vision of what politics and government policy should look like is not popular and will unlikely ever be really popular. You might be able to cobble together a majority to defend some of it, but it's just not popular. People like free stuff. People like being given money. People like getting. Uh, more from the government than they pay in taxes Um, and uh, people also tend not to think seriously about politics doesn't mean they're not smart it means they're normal people thinking about other stuff and one of the genius things about the founding again forget the left right stuff for a second one of the genius things about the founding is that the founding fathers understood this as rules of human nature not oh, progressives are always good and conservatives are always bad or conservatives are always good and progressives are always bad. It was that they understood that when you get large numbers of people together and they're pissed off, they're going to demand things that probably aren't good for protecting the the long-term viability of the country um, that aren't going to be well thought through. That's why they created all of these buffers and filters and systems to let deliberation and compromise uh, work itself out. And um that's the whole, you know, that's not the whole reason why we have two branches of the ledge we have two legislative branches, um, or why we make it hard to amend the Constitution. But it's a big part of it, is just this idea of letting these ideas uh, you know, sluice around a bit until they can get better absorbed into the soil, until people have time to sort of ruminate on them. And uh if you want to get rid of all of these checks and balances that are inherent to the sort of classical liberal understanding of how government works, you're going to get yourself into a hot mess. And those, those mechanisms, again, they may not be good right now for Republicans. Although again, that's the other thing is I don't get, you know, all of these silent majority people, they think that there's this vast reserve army, of white blue collar people who agree with ultramontane post-liberal integralism. They don't, you know, I mean, a lot of the issues that the system as constructed are protecting like gun rights, um, like freedom of worship. These things are, uh, you know, the more you get rid of the anti-majoritarian elements of the bill of rights, or of the courts or just our constitutional structure, the more likely those things are going to be in jeopardy. And, you know, and lastly, I just find that this stuff is just as a matter of punditry, counterproductive, the way Trump governed and the way Trump supported act, supporters acted is one of the reasons why you got Biden. Um, it is one of the reasons why, uh, uh, the politics of right now are, uh, the politics right now are so, um, bad for conservatives and um the more you embrace that stuff and you actually make structural changes to the constitutional order in the name of either protecting your the sort of fake majority of your voters um or in order to give judges and politicians power to stuff that to do things that power to do stuff that is ultimately unpopular, um, or seen as extreme or radical, uh, the more likely you are going to regret doing all this kind of stuff. And anyway, I'm, I'm rambling here and people are, uh, texting me about the, as the, as people listen to the Gallagher episode, I get texts from random people like, oh my God, what's going on. Let's talk about the court packing thing for, for two seconds. And I, you know, I've talked about this a bunch before. So like I'm sitting in my office, my home office in Washington, DC, um, where I have a lot of books I have, I, and if anybody knows where I can unload a bunch of books, I don't want anymore, please let me know. I hate the idea of throwing out books, but it's really hard to find places that will take, um, book donations. And they tend to like only want to take the books that they want. And then they say, take back. The ones you don't, I, I just want to get rid of lots of boxes of books and there's some really good books in them and there are some, uh, not so good books in them, but I just need to make room for the books that I really want to keep. Anyway, that's, that's a subject for another time. Among all of these books and the books I have upstairs and the books I have in more boxes, um, elsewhere, I probably have 20, 25 books on the new deal or biographies of FDR or some other element of that period and um uh and i'm just looking around at them or at least some of them because i also haven't organized them very well and i did this on twitter a while back i did screenshots of a few of them there's basically not a book that was written about the history of the supreme court the history of the 1930s the new deal fdr uh all that kind of stuff that doesn't refer to uh, FDR's attempt to expand the court as court packing, and they all do it. Liberal historians, I don't know, Robert Dalek, uh, William Luckenberg, um, uh, you know uh, Alan Brinkley. I mean, you just I'm just looking for names of books or you know authors of books around here. You just go down a list. Uh, you know uh, what's his name? Um, uh, one of my favorite books, Eric Goldman. Right. I mean, so like um, all these guys, they called court packing. It was understood as court packing. It was discussed as court packing. It was, uh, denounced as court packing, uh, liberals denounced it. Conservatives denounced it. Normal Americans denounced it. Court packing had a specific meaning and, um, and this was not a controversial point fast forward to the last year or so and you've got you know a whole host of of you know msnbc host types and blue check mark liberals talking about how if you call it court packing you're on the side you know you're 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 you know uh you're on the side of uh you know of lies and darkness or whatever that you are you know against democracy, that you are playing the rights game and using their terms. It's not it's not our term. I mean this is just (laughs) this is just what what it was called. And um and then I saw like uh yesterday Jerry Nadler you know he says um we're not court packing we're unpacking you know and look and part of this I get it is part of this is this dumb argument that Because Republicans successfully got a lot of conservative judges appointed, that's the real court packing. No, that's just not what court packing meant for almost a century. Um, They're trying to just come up with, you know, they're trying to take away, they're trying to flip the word around. You know, it's sort of like Trump used, you know, took fake news, which was originally about like these fake news sites in, uh, in, you know, set up in like Yugoslavia or something that were being used to pump out body min- misinformation. And he turned it around and says, no, the real the real fake news is the New York Times. And, you know, he got away with it. I found the whole thing kind of stupid and boring and annoying, but whatever, he got away with it. That's what they're trying to do with, with court packing is now say that court packing doesn't mean actually uh, trying to shove onto the court a bunch of... Uh, part of you know uh, of like-minded uh justices it means um you know it means successfully using the process that already exists to get get uh judges appointed that's court packing what the democrats want to do is uh uh, court enlargement or as nadler puts it unpacking so i mean i get the larger argument but like i love this you know i mean this is so uh I know you are, but what am I kind of thing? I mean, do we get to do this about any charge? You know, I wasn't robbing. I was unrobbing. Um, um, I just think it's, you know, uh, it's, it's so pathetic and, and weird, but it gets to this larger thing, which I don't know. I may write about it today. It's been in my head for a while. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that Ross Douthat's book about decadence, uh, I mean, it was a good book. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's coming more into my mind these days because and I, maybe I've written about this before. I don't know. Um, um, but there is this, um, you know, part of his argument is that we're just recycling a bunch of stuff culturally and, you know, that's part of it. But another part of it is, is that some of this has to do with the fact that we don't that we've conquered virtual space, digital space, um, screen space, uh, in really impressive and unimaginable ways. You know, we're really good at manipulating ones and zeros, but we've kind of stalled on the physical stuff. You know, um, we're not setting up moon bases or going to Mars, or at least we're not going fast enough. We don't have jet packs. You know, we got lots of stuff on our phones, but we don't have like you know, giant pneumatic tubes that, you know, whisk us from one end of the country to the other. And I think, you know, I mean, like Peter Thiel and other people have, have made these, these points as well. Um, but I think that one of the, what, what I've been thinking about is that a lot, when a lot of intellectual energy, um, just sort of like big reserve pool of creativity and dynamism cannot find expression in the physical world, you It finds undue expression in the, call it, the I don't know, the artistic world, the the world of, of symbols and concepts and entertainment and, and, and words, right? Words and ideas. It becomes, it goes there. And I think you don't have to get too highfalutin and neuromancery here to see that that's happened, right? That, you know, the. Best and brightest are either moving into the world of finance where they're moving numbers around in ever more complicated ways to make money, or they're moving concepts and images around in new and interesting ways. Um, and, um, and I think that this kind of has an analog with, uh, the, um, um, this sort of, this point I've been making about how campuses are exporting their culture, people stop texting me, jeepers. Um, uh, uh, you know, in a, on a college campus, if you're in some sort of poli sci or philosophy or history seminar, um, the trick now really isn't mastery of like the history, maybe it is in grad school still, but for a lot of the time, it's really just Mastering the concepts of and 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 learning how to speak the lingo and learning the shibboleths and finding new and creative ways to call something racist or sexist or transphobic or 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 whatever. And I'm not saying there's no merit to that kind of inquiry, but I also think that kind of inquiry is so much less interesting than its practitioners think it is, and there's so much more of it than the society needs, um, and. It feels like that these two things, um, in combination and on their own are spilling out into our politics in ways that make word or concept manipulation more important than doing things right. And, and, or making, or, or, or making serious arguments, you know, uh, the House keeps passing these very ambitious and radical messaging bills that have little chance of passing in the Senate, much like the Republicans did when they controlled things. Um, but they are wonderful for offering these grand visions about what you believe and what you're doing and what you're fighting for when you're on cable TV. But for the most part, they're all garbage, and um, they're they're useful as 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 paper tiger rhetorical props for sound bites but they're not actual serious legislation that involves dealing with the facts on the ground and negotiating with people for example this for the people thing uh you know hr1 which is all about electric stuff the bulk of that was already written before the 2020 elections before the pandemic it is just this list you know this broad omnibus of wish list items that were aimed at, you know, I mean, problems that predated alleged problems, I should say, that predated both the pandemic and the 2020 election. And yet when you hear people going around saying how much we need it, it's all about what happened in the twenty twenty election. I think it was Zoe Glofgren said that, you know, we had massive voter suppression in the twenty twenty election no, we didn't. It was, it was in percentage terms. It was the biggest turnout in a hundred years and absolute terms. It was the biggest turnout ever. Um, there was no voter suppression, you know, but like, this is the talking point that they've been stuck on, you know, ever since at least Stacey Abrams. And part of it is just sort of fan service for their base. It tells them that we live in this oppressive society and blah, 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 blah. And that the reserve army of the proletariat, if they can only get their class consciousness and be able to like, uh, get to the polling places because they've been, which they're denied the ability to do that. We will have super majorities for all time. And it's all garbage. My only point here is about the the messaging legislation is that it's all about messaging. It's not about, you know, facts on the ground, real problems. It's not even about facts of the Congress where you're trying to build a coalition to pass something. It is just, you know, what will sound good in on, you know, on the Rachel Maddow show kind of garbage or with, uh, Joanne Reed kind of garbage. And, uh, in the same way that a lot of the stuff that Republicans in the house were trying to do was just messaging for Fox and for, for getting talking points for, for Trump to say. And, but it's bigger than that. My point is, is that like, so you look at the court packing, thing, you call it court enlargement. You say court packing is not, is it right wing term that's illegitimate and you Um, talk about how it up, you know, you know, when you use that kind of language, you're upholding structures of oppression and white supremacy and yada, yada, yada. Um, you can do the same thing with, uh, you know, with infrastructure there, you know, basically because infrastructure has a positive meaning. It is basically shorthand for good in our politics, um, based upon polling, uh, that if you can. If you can convince people that an infrastructure bill is infrastructure, it doesn't matter if it's actually infrastructure. It's just the words matter. And, um, and there's so much of this kind of wordplay stuff. I mean, the one I'm a little more sympathetic to, not that I agree with it, but I, th- I think it's a defensible argument is when Biden says, look, I'm being bipartisan because a lot of Republicans support what I'm doing. Again, that's based on the polling, but I think it's probably more right than wrong. And I understand why it drives a lot of people crazy, um, particularly Republicans, because he's basically saying, I got enough of your voters that I don't have to get your votes. Um, and as a strategy, I, I you know, I can respect that, even though he is sort of redefining what it means to be bipartisan. But the larger point is, is that it's so much about this is just word manipulation. And I think part of this is because so many people don't actually pay attention to politics. They pay attention to to the extent they pay attention to politics, what they're really paying attention to is screaming on TV. And that's not actually politics. That's entertainment. And, um, and again, it's just about manipulating words. It's not about like whether or not you can get enough people in, uh, Peoria to support changing zoning because there's the right of way easement problem, whatever that stuff used to be understood as politics is, is different interests you know, uh, working with each other or, or working against each other for some good. It was horse trading and all that kind of stuff. There's almost none of that kind of talk except around Joe mansion on, on cable TV or on most of these websites. It's all sort of symbolic stuff. It's all turning, you know, trying to make everything into this grand symbol of something. And I'll give you a, you know, a, a great example of this, that I, um, was so angry about last night. Um, I got this email from, uh, some pack, some democratic pack. Um, where is it? Uh, yeah. So it was, you know, I, I my old email address is just on a thousand different lists and I get all this crazy stuff. And, um, I got this one that, the subject header was your mask pledge and the first line of it is i will wear a mask and then the rest of it is stop republicans um new president biden begs americans to keep wearing a mask wearing a mask through the next year can save lives a significant number of lives and then it's like sign the pledge join president biden and pledge to wear a mask Jonah, we're so grateful to have a president who takes COVID-19 seriously. President Biden is right. Wearing a mask is the best way to slow the spread, blah, 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 blah. But we need Democrats from every state, including your state, Jonah. I don't live in a state, to pledge to wear a mask for the rest of the year. It's the only way to protect Americans. Jonah, we need 25,000 progressives to pledge to wear a mask today. Add your name to represent Democrats. Sign the pledge. Join President Biden. Pledge to wear a mask. Thank you for doing your support. And then it's you know it goes on with, like, you know, Know, give me money stuff, and it's it's from the Stop Republicans, um, uh, fund, um, and it's part of the Democratic major Democratic Senate Majority Fund. Yada yada yada. My only point is, like, that's what we're, you know. I, I spent a lot of time making fun of and mocking these jack wagons um, on the, the sort of boob bait right, making masks into um, a culture war symbol. Um, you know, saying that if you wear a mask, I mean, there's that one woman from the Washington Times who like literally said, we were giving into the sinization or something like we were being made Chinese and giving over to the communist party. If we agreed to wear masks, um, during a pandemic, it's also stupid, right? I'm not wildly pro mask. I'm not wildly anti mask. Same like with the like, vaccine passports. I'm not wildly vac- pro vaccine passport or anti I think there are prudential arguments for all of these things in specific places and not in others um and this effort to sort of uh reify these things and make them into these grand symbolic um fights between you know good and evil are grotesque and dangerous um and now you're seeing it from the left and I and I, I can't remember if I've said this on here before but I really think that we're heading into a time where we're going to see more craziness from the sort of the intended audience for this kind of, you know, um, asinine email, uh, we're going to see more craziness from the, I don't ever want to take masks off crowd than, um, uh, from the anti-mask people because the anti-mask people at this point, um, it's getting easier for them not to wear masks, you know, and we're hitting, heading towards herd immunity. Most of the people who live in places that are like crazy anti-mask. Um, there's not a lot of pressure to wear masks and sure you might still have to wear them in stores for a little while, and you might see a few freak outs, you know, on YouTube videos or 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 Twitter or you know, Instagram for a little while longer. But it now feels like the people who are um being irrational culture warriors are the pro-mask people. And they are um there is some kind of weird psychological virtue signaling paranoia i don't know exactly what to call it involved here um you know why why is you know joe biden had a picture of him at arlington cemetery i guess he was visiting the afghan you know war dead and you know he's walking solemnly alone in a cemetery in a cemetery wearing a mask now he's been vaccinated he's also not around any living people, why is he wearing a mask? I mean, I mean, I get that they think that this is a way to encourage people to wear masks, but I think it's, it's crazy to do that because the whole messaging about the vaccine should be, if you get vaccinated, you might have to make, still make, take some precautions, but you can get back to living a normal life. Why is the guy is social distance. I mean, even in the height of the pandemic before the vaccine, he could have not had his mask on. And the signaling that we're getting here again, is this weird, um, metaphorical, symbolic, um, words matter more, more than reality kind of approach to, to this stuff. And it kind of creeps me out. Um, anyway, I got to think through this more before I get further into weeds on it. I should close since I mentioned the Afghanistan stuff on the Afghanistan stuff. Um, I wrote my column about it today. Um, it's up at the dispatch. Uh, look i I get wanting to get out totally. Um, I would very much like to believe that getting out is the right thing to do, and I am open to the idea that this will work out well, and i am I'm being utterly and totally sincere. I really hope it does. I hope it does. I hope the Taliban has gotten tired of war it's gotten a taste for you know being responsible i hope that these um these very serious gains in terms of women being able to go to school about uh life expectancy um i I hope all of those things continue in afghanistan i hope that um it doesn't and obviously i hope it doesn't become a terrorist safe haven and all that um I just don't find any of the arguments that that's the most likely scenario. Very persuasive. Um, again, hope I'm wrong, but you know, first of all, uh, you know, when Biden says, when the white house says that this has to be a, that it can't be conditions based because, um, uh, a conditions based withdrawal is a recipe for staying there forever. um, Uh, the proper and reasonable and common sense way of interpreting that is that what they're really saying is this is unconditional withdrawal. That's what not conditions-based means. It means unconditional. And that's what we're doing. We're unconditionally leaving regardless of the facts on the ground. And we've set the the deadline date as September 11th. Now, I, I couldn't get into detail about this in the column, but I think picking September 11th as the deadline date the 20 year anniversary of September 11th is grotesque and idiotic. I don't get it. You know, Biden has this thing and this is not like a recent thing. This is all his life where he has batty ideas about how foreign policy works. Um, I remember reading about how after nine 11, he, uh, his first response was to tell his staff, he was like the chairman of the foreign relations committee at the time, was to say, you know what we need to do? We need to like send Iran 150 million dollars or some number like that. Just to show them that, you know, this isn't about them. We're not mad at them or or something. I don't I still don't really understand what the point of it was. And his staff just all kind of looked at their shoes and hoped the thing, the the idea would go away. I don't know who at um the Biden White House thinks giving this obvious PR victory to the Taliban and to Al-Qaeda um, for free, no conditions whatsoever, is a good idea. I just I can't get my head around it. The date matters. The date matters to them. This helps them. I mean, you you don't have to be, you know, some wordsmith to figure out how even the Taliban can write the press release or how the Al-Qaeda can write the press release about how um, they proved that it you know—it took longer than we thought, but we proved that America is still a paper tiger and doesn't have the will to um, win and blah, 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 blah. And 20 years to the day after our righteous attack on 9-11 in New York, um, we have defeated the Americans. Uh, you, know, you couldn't pick some other date. I mean, I understand that in a re in a serious way, this isn't all a very arbitrary kind of thing, but these arbitrary kind of symbols matter, particularly at that level of geopolitics. And I just, it's, it's astoundingly stupid and weird. And I don't get it. I mean, I truly don't get it unless they have some great polling that it is, it is, or they're, they have this eye, eye towards history that they think that this will have deep and powerful and positive meaning on the, for American voters or his place in history to tie it to this date. Um, but I don't get that. I don't get why that would be the case either. And certainly not considering that we're in effect surrendering. Um, um, it just, it's, it's batty to me, but also like on a broader case. Look, and I should say also, you know, more importantly, when they say it's not conditions based, they are conceding that, um, they can't, that they, that they, that they can't do the job. Right. I mean, let me me put it this way. Um, the, in the pre-brief, in the briefing that the white house did with the seniors, you know, senior advisor that they didn't name, you know, they go into a lot of detail about this. And then Biden in his speech gets into some detail about this. Um, they still claim, and you should read Eli Lake about all this as well. Um, they still claim that they can do the counterterrorism operations that they need to do, um, with drones and with other assets that aren't in fear, right? We're going to give up a massive air base, which is a pretty useful thing to have. If, if we're, if we're serious about competition with great powers, um, is the important thing, which is what the strategic review the Biden administration is talking about is, is like, stop looking backwards at terrorism. Our now, our foreign policy needs to be about, about our geopolitical competitors like China and Russia. Well, you know, having an air base right there on both of their doorsteps seems like a good thing to have if that's your view about how, uh, you know, what our foreign policy is going to be dominated by in the next century, particularly when you have, um you know, China and India getting into all sorts of rock'em sock'em robot stuff in the in the Himalayas. So, um, but regardless, when they say they can do all of this stuff, um, they I, I'm not persuaded at all. The idea that we're gonna just like launch drones out of Pakistan, that Pakistan is gonna let us do whatever we need to do out of there when, you know, as Eli Lake, you know, points out, uh, You know, Pakistan played this game of footsie with the Taliban all of this time. They threw the the guy who helped us get bin Laden is still in jail. Um, uh, The idea that somehow they're going to let us use them as, you know, our new base of operations to do what we need to do when we need to do it. I just think it's nonsense. And um, and they're conceding that. That's my point is that they're conceding that point when they say this isn't conditions based Um, because. Uh when you say it's not conditions based you're basically saying uh, uh we just give up right and that's actually what Colin Powell said in the Washington post and it was, you know and I' find this this utterly baffling um statement where he says uh i'm quoting from memory you know uh we've done all we can do, and besides look, you know the Soviet Union did the same thing, they just got tired and they left and and who remembers that? Or how long did anybody remember that? Now, I don't I don't know what the hell he's talking about with this. How long did anybody remember that? Um, because who cares how long people remember that? I mean, is this purely like some sort of um, political calculus about why we're doing foreign policy? And as long as people don't have a long memory about it, it won't matter in the next election. I honestly don't get what he's talking about there. But the thing is, Colm Powell used to give speeches as the Secretary of State when we invaded Afghanistan and throughout the war on terror, where he understood that the significance of the Soviet Union's withdrawal from Afghanistan, regardless of how long people remembered it, was profound. You know, read the Looming Tower. The al-Qaeda types took huge credit, whether they deserved as much as they you know claimed because there were other elements of the Mujahideen and all that. but they took huge credit for defeating the Soviets. They thought the Soviets were the more, more dangerous adversary than the United States. You know, Osama bin Laden admired, admired the Soviets, um, cruelty in battle, um, because he thought that was a sign of masculinity and strong horsiness or whatever his you know, terms for these things was. And he always thought that Americans were the weaker of the two, um, superpowers and the defeat of the Soviet union in Afghanistan. Um, you know, there's a serious debate about how much that led to the fall of the Soviet union, which is a significant thing in its own right. I don't think our defeat in Afghanistan spells the same thing for us or anything, but um, uh, it was hugely important to the narratives that led, gave rise and made Islamic terrorism so attractive. And the idea that somehow on nine, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, uh, uh, admitting defeat in Afghanistan, which is what, you know, whether you think that's right or not in the region that's what they're going to see it as. That's what the Taliban is going to see it as. That's what sort of ISIS and Al Qaeda types are going to see it as. Um, admitting defeat uh, is going to have serious repercussions. And this just gets to the, you know, the the larger issue. Look, I mean, I don't like hearing about people dying in Afghanistan, um, uh, but we had a very small force. We have right now, we have a very small force in Afghanistan and um all it was doing was ensuring that the taliban couldn't take over Kabul, essentially and this is a point that uh, my friend bing west has been making for years we talked about it when he was on the remnant now his argument was forget the nation building stuff i mean do nice things where you can when you can within you know your zone of occupation but basically the way you deny the afghans the ability to project power i should say the talibans the taliban or al-qaeda types to project power beyond their borders is they have to have Kabul to do that. And if they don't have Kabul, they really, you know, you can hold them at bay. They can, they'll they still do bad things. Um, but you prevent Afghanistan from becoming, um, a serious terrorist safe Haven. And that's basically, as I understand it, what we were doing, um, uh, for the most part, I mean, I think there were some other, you know, operational things and the idea of saying, you know, Biden says no one could, you know, if you, if the problem with conditions based is that, um, uh, no one can describe for us the conditions that would require, that would make it okay to leave or when they might come about to which my response is, yeah. Okay. Maybe the problem isn't the answers to that question. Maybe the problem is that question. And, uh, you know, and as I right, um, there will always be crime. We don't say, you know, we got to get rid of the cops because we can't, no one can answer the question of what the conditions will look like when we won't need cops anymore. We don't say we don't need paramedics because no one can describe the conditions when people won't have car accidents or heart attacks anymore. You know, uh, dams serve their purpose, um, for as long as we need them to serve their purpose. We don't, it's not contingent upon Understanding when the conditions for the dam will not be necessary anymore. We've had troops in South Korea for um 70 years and uh troops in Germany for, I mean, I guess a bunch of them have left, but we had to have some people there. We had at least troops in Germany for a really long time. I know a bunch moved to like Poland and stuff, but um, we have troops in Japan for um, you know, 80 years, something like that. And I know there are certain people on the left and the right, the sort of the, you know, the Buchananite isolationist types and the, I don't know, Greenwaldian isolationist types who have profound problems with this imperial role and all that. Most Americans don't because Americans aren't dying. And the, the way in which the Afghan situation got folded into the concept of a forever war, um, I think is in many ways a disservice, but, I get it. You know, we went to war there and and we're still seeing combat and all that. But to me, this is just a matter of, of, of will, you know, are you going to hold the Taliban at bay until their will is broken and they agree to become part of a semi-normal country or are, is your will going to be broken because you just get tired? And I think sending the signal that we just got too tired. Um, is a terrible signal to send. And, um, and I don't think keeping a couple thousand troops in Afghanistan um, is this unbelievable burden for the United States of America. Um, I think maybe one of the things we could have done is recalibrate our posture there so that it was explicit what that role was, which was just simply, you know, we're going to protect what we have and we're going to Produce a couple generations of, of smart, well-educated, uh, you know, more reasonable Muslims and secular types who allow women to go to school without having their faces burned and and with acid and and allow and 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 doesn't round people up and put them in stadiums and and murder them wholesale for being heretics, um, and in the process of doing that, we're also going to hold off. We're going to prevent the Taliban from ever being able to turn Afghanistan into a terrorist safe haven. That seems like a totally like sellable position. Um, but we decided not to do that. And I think one of the reasons we decided not to do that has a lot less to do with facts and reality on the ground or persuasive arguments or any of that stuff I was talking about before. It has to do entirely with symbolism and, 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 and word manipulation and, um and I, look i understand that's always been part of politics but uh it's swamping everything now and i think that's that's dangerous and i think we're going to get to a place where if we don't have what confucius called a rectification of the names um things are going to go pretty cattywampus pretty pretty badly um and um but i can talk about that more another time uh, lastly i want to say thanks <laughs> to mike Gallagher for being such a good sport i mean in fairness this was his idea to do this uh drinkathon um half baked ideas episode um i want to apologize to people who think i was outrageously overserved by by myself um i think that's a fair criticism um i just kind of you know i just kind of lost track having fun on the conversation and i think in the last little bit i was i i i, I have not listened to it i can't do it because it'll make me cringe, but I am told by reliable observers and listeners that I was starting to show my tipsiness by the end. And um, I know it's not entirely professional, but it was a fun thing to do. I didn't get to cover all of my half-baked ideas the way I wanted to. I still have more half-baked ideas, um, which I'm trying to figure out if I should save or if um, we should let them loose here. I don't, I think I'll just hold on to him for for a little while longer at the very least. Um, but it was a lot of fun to do. Um, I hope people who listen to it, listen to it in the spirit with which it was intended. Um, and I'd be very happy if, um, uh, we start having a, like I, I told Gallagher the next day we were texting because he was like, I'm trying to figure out whether or not I destroyed my, my political career last night. And, um, and I was telling him I've already made, uh, my euphemism for having a mild hangover. I was podcasting with Mike Gallagher last night. Um, cause, uh, I felt it and, um, um, uh, but it was a fun time and give it a listen and, uh, give a listen to the Andy Samaric episode too. I, I, I enjoyed that. And he was also a good sport for indulging my, um, my tantrums. And, oh, and by the way, you remember I talked, la- I think it was last week, I talked about this idea of doing sort of like the, the, the supplementals on the revolutions podcast of just doing sort of semi-red things. Well, I, I recorded one yesterday. Um, I don't know when we're going to use it or how we're going to use it quite yet. I did it on social Darwinism. Um, we'll see whether it's good enough to run and then i will get your feedback from you guys. But um, I think there's some potential there. And, uh, I'm recording a new glop, uh, later this afternoon. So if you're a glop listener, um, look for that. And, um, other than that, I guess I'll just see you next time. plus.